Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and World Affairs. I'm your host, Anna Levy. Today, we'll be talking about a new volume, Critical Disaster Studies, with co-editors Dr. Jacob Remus, Clinical Associate Professor at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at New York University, and Dr. Andy Horowitz, Associate Professor of History at the University of Connecticut, who also serves as the Connecticut State Historian. Critical Disaster Studies is a timely interdisciplinary contribution to popular and scholarly questions that have become front and center since the start of the global COVID-19 pandemic year of 2020. It's a volume which contends with and questions narratives, theories, and definitions of disaster we've held for far too long, further grappling with what to make of an age of perpetual crisis that we find ourselves in. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, welcome to New Books in World Affairs. It's really a pleasure to have both of you here. Um, A few years ago, whenever I mentioned that I worked on crisis politics, folks would always assume that that meant I worked for an emergency management agency. And I was, you know, not exactly, but really not sure how to explain the kind of work that I was doing. This book that you two have put together helps such a great deal in communicating what crisis politics is and all the different ways that we can think about the past and the future in light of it. So thank you so much for joining. I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. So let's just start with a little bit of background. Uh, Maybe you could tell me how you both came to the field of that is now called critical disaster studies and what eventually ended up leading you to write a whole or edit a volume about it? Yeah, so I uh, was, the short answer is I was in graduate school when Hurricane Katrina happened. Uh, I uh, was in my second year of graduate school. We were in a seminar on North American urban history. Uh, the first week, because it was the beginning of this the term, the, the first week when we were going through our Uh, the classes we were going to read. Uh, We're gonna read uh, Carl Smith's book on Chicago, Imaginations of of Urban urban Disorder in Chicago. And one of the things he talks about in that book is how there were these sort of fantasies, both of disorder, crime, um, misbehavior in the aftermath of the Chicago fire, and how also there were fantasies of vigilante violence uh, in response to that. And my very wise professor in that course, uh, Sally Deutsch, said, mark my words, these stories that we're hearing coming out of New Orleans right now of animalistic behavior, uh, murder, people running riot, rape, crazy looting, all these things, people shooting at at, uh, at helicopters, all those things are going to turn out to be untrue. Uh, and sure enough, uh, as Andy can can tell you more of, uh, those those stories turned out to be uh, grotesquely exaggerated. In fact, the violence was primarily coming from the states, primarily coming from uh, police acting as vigilantes, and and so uh, I wrote I wrote about that for that course, and it kind of developed into a dissertation project and a first book project about how working class people respond to disaster, and. Um, after that, as I was as I was an assistant professor, there I started having more and more conversations with people um, 
about how there seemed to be a new trend in disaster studies, uh, less technocratic, uh, more geared at critical understanding of culture and society. And, but we didn't quite know what, what that was. And uh, so we put together a conference and said, let's figure out inductively what this field of critical disaster studies is. Let's have people propose papers. We can see what themes there are and figure out what the field is based on what people are actually doing. And uh, the book is the result of that. Great, Andy, what about you? Well, my origin story on the on the book is just that Jacob asked me if I would help. I need to give credit. This was entirely his idea, and I'm so grateful to him for uh, letting me, you know, play the play the part in it that I did. But the way I came to disasters, one of the things about being a historian, of course, is that you become haunted by the knowledge that where you start a story is like is a very loaded thing. So I it's hard for me to even answer a question like, "How did you first get interested in this?" Because um, I have six different versions. Here's one the here's one of the one of the six that's that's quite true. Um, it also is takes place in Louisiana, like like Jacobs does. Um, I had spent some time. Well, you know, I also should say that I watched Katrina, the flood unfold on television, and um, there's much to say about that that moment. But but one thing that I remember very clearly is that on the the day the levees broke, I, I called uh, a friend of mine in Louisiana. And, who had people who had evacuated to her house in, in Lafayette, Louisiana. And I was just trying to give her some, some comfort, you know, say a nice thing to help her feel better. And I said, um, of course, the people that were there were watching their houses fill with water on, on TV. And I said, you know, tomorrow, you're gonna see the most powerful country in the history of the world do something unequivocally good. It's gonna be amazing, I said to her. And of course, the next day, uh, things only got worse. And so one of the, you know, uh, it, when you are so wrong about your country, um, it, it's, it can, it's quite unsettling and it sparked years of exploration and research and consideration. That's sort of the one origin for my work on Katrina and my work as a historian in some ways, generally, um, how could I be so wrong? But then, for, for so that lived in my head. And then I spent some time in New Orleans the summer, the next summer, spring and summer of 2006, after the flood. And then I ultimately moved to Louisiana in 2007. And I was uh, marginally employed and had a fair amount of free time. And I spent a lot of time fishing, kayak fishing on the coast of Louisiana. And the, what this has to do with disasters is that there had been, you know, Katrina had happened in 2005. And the word most attached to that event was sort of unprecedented which is a word that we attach to disasters all the time, unprecedented, acute, unexpected. You know, they seem to come out of nowhere. And when I would go to these little launch sites to sort of put, put my boat in the water all over the coast, there had been a number of hurricanes in that season. There was Hurricane Katrina and Rita and uh, Ike and Ivan and Gustav. I'm forgetting the, the chronology right now, but there had been a bunch of storms and people on the coast were in pretty rough shape. And I remember having these little conversations with with people as I, as I put the boat in the water and they'd say, you know, um, rebuilding now just feels harder than it used to. And I said, well, well you know, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, we, we rebuilt after Betsy or they'd name earlier storms and said, but, but it feels different now. And this was a pretty surprising thing to me, the more I thought about it, because again, when you think of disasters as acute moments 
sort of once in a generation events to hear people say that they had been through multiple of these storms was surprising. First of all, whoa, shit, this has happened to you before. I thought this was supposed to be a once in a lifetime unprecedented event. That's the first thing. And then as I went to graduate school, the idea that uh, these similar weather events could have such different social and political outcomes that people could say, you know, the storm's the same, but it feels harder to, to rebuild this time, uh, was a provocative, you know, ethnographic finding, to put it that way. And so it became interesting to me to write about Louisiana as one place, one coherent place over time that had experienced these similar storms with very different human outcomes. And that, to me, uh, unsettled the common idea of disaster in general, you know, the idea that they're unprecedented and acute, or the idea that there's some sort of stable static thing called a disaster anyway, because what would it mean if, you know, if, if there's really no straight lines that connect a storm or a flood to its human effects, then what really are we talking about when we talk about disaster? Are we talking about the, the weather or are we talking about something else? And figuring out what that something else might be has animated uh, my work now for more than a decade. And it was why it was such an interesting invitation from Jacob to get to become a part of this critical disaster studies thing. Because while I was writing about, you know, I, I ended up writing a book about Katrina, which is kind of a, a history of New Orleans in the 20th century. And that let me sort of explore uh, what Katrina meant to people in New Orleans, what its causes and consequences were on a kind of, you know, specific way that's sort of, you know, very rooted in, in, in metropolitan New Orleans. Critical disaster studies was an opportunity to think on a more theoretical register um, about how the things that I learned in Louisiana, how I might, you know, apply those things in, in other times and places. And, and also to learn from people across disciplines about how they had made similar moves from specific uh, cases that were you know, provocative to them to more generalizable understanding. Great, you mentioned, uh, Andy, you mentioned that you know one of the things that brought you here was um, the realization that for folks in, at least in New Orleans, this idea of a disaster is a once in a lifetime event wasn't, wasn't really true. And you know something that I understand for both of you is that you had a near complete manuscript of this book as COVID set, set in. Um, so I'm wondering uh, if you can talk a little bit about that experience of writing a book about critical disaster studies uh, as what we now know, you know, COVID did and was and is in sort of global society and imagination, political economy. Can you talk about where where the book was as final, final manuscript um, at this point when COVID set in? in spring 2020 and March 2020, February, March, April 2020, I guess, depending on where you start. And what I can only imagine were a number of pretty hard left turns, uh, you know, and then renegotiating how to reorganize the book, how to rethink uh, the book, especially since it's a dialogue uh, between and across 12 authors, I think, on five continents representing seven different disciplines. I'm so glad that it feels to you that the book was reworked and renovated in light of the pandemic, because the truth is it wasn't at all. Um, the manuscript was pretty done. Certainly the chapters were done. Jacob and I were working on our introduction. And, you know, I think we, 
you know, we sort of put things aside, obviously, for a period of time while we just, sort of, you know, let life life happen uh, in that very difficult period. But I think when we came back and kind of asked ourselves all the questions you asked, like, well, shoot, this is a big deal. But, you know, this is a, a, a sort of case study par excellence for the whole world. Um, sh shortly, we have to grapple with it. We reread the manuscript. And what we were, I think, was a really sort of arresting and satisfying thing at the same time was how much the book worked, you know, um, without any changes. We added, a, we added a couple of lines in the introduction just to say, sort of call out some of the questions we thought critical disaster studies raised that would be productive to ask of the pandemic. And we can talk about the, those, you know, in, in a moment. But even the things that sort of that, that people said, say in March, 2020, people said, you know, the pandemic's gonna be a, a great equalizer. And this was an example of people thinking of the virus as the causal agent of the thing that we come to call the pandemic. And it's probably true that uh, biological susceptibility to the virus is apportioned according to a biological logic. No doubt that's true. But at the same time, you know, as I was reading those words, Jacob and I were, that was one of the conversations I remember us having. We were sitting inside, hermetically sealed off from the rest of the world because we were, you know, had a class position and a type of profession that let us work from home. Meanwhile, people paid a small fraction of what we get paid were bringing food and groceries to our house, putting themselves at great risk. So there was no great equalizer at all. What there was was a virus that was refracted through all the inequalities that define society. And so we, we knew right away that, you know, just from sort of talking through that, that example, that the questions that we meant to ask about disaster through critical disaster studies were really um, totally applicable, we thought revealing and provocative in the new moment. Um, and, and in a way, I think it gave us, I don't know for you, for you, Jacob, but for me, it gave me a lot more confidence in the project because I thought, well, we didn't anticipate, I didn't anticipate this at all, but the book holds up, I think, entirely in this context. And that, that means I think that we're, that we have something worth saying here. To elaborate a little bit on, on what you're, what you're starting to, to share, which is, you know, the core argument, core contents of the book, um, in the first few pages of the introduction, two phrases set the stage for what comes after. One is one, one phrase, one statement is, there is no such thing as a natural disaster and disasters are ordering mechanisms. So let's start there. You've touched on both of those uh, pretty briefly when talking about Katrina and then when the book was unfolding, this sort of where do we go next? Does it still apply? Again, there is no such thing as a natural disaster and disasters are ordering mechanisms. These are pretty bold statements, especially the first one, considering it seems like we're in a constant state of emergency now, global pandemic, uh, political crisis, uh, debt crises in many countries, uh, rising numbers of people who are uh, in, in situations of forced migration. Can you elaborate on what these two statements mean and uh, why they help set the stage for what the book is ultimately trying to communicate? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the phrase, there's no such thing as a natural disaster, uh, comes out of really a movement in disaster studies that stretches back to the 1970s. It's been 40 years that, um, that scholars of disaster 
have been embracing what we call the vulnerability paradigm. So the vulnerability paradigm uh, says that uh, there are hazards and some hazards may have natural origin, an earthquake, uh, a tornado, uh, a heat wave, a, a, fam a, um, a drought. Some hazards might not have a natural origin, a factory explosion, a bomb falling from the sky, a, um, a group of soldiers coming into a town and shooting everybody. Um, so some hazards are natural, some hazards aren't, but that in all of those cases, what makes a disaster, what makes a hazard into a disaster is the intersection with human society. Uh, I always say to my class, if a hurricane goes over a desert island, it's just a storm on a desert island. It's not, it's not a disaster. A disaster is only when it affects people. And the way it affects people is shaped by um, root causes of, of class, gender, race, age, disability, all of the structures of oppression and inequality that structure everything else in, in society. Uh, and so the, the vulnerability to those hazards is, um, is what creates a disaster. And that vulnerability is felt both before and after, right? So if you are, um, just to put it, put it simply, if you're richer, you're less likely to have um, your house flooded uh, or your house fall down because you're more likely to be able to build with high quality um, materials and have your house well maintained. You're more likely to be on a hill if you're in a place that floods with, with some frequency. Uh, so that's sort of a before, you're less vulnerable to the hazard itself. And you're more likely to have resources, social networks, uh, economic resources, uh, political resources to help you recover from whatever damage you do have. So um, what we then say is it's not even just that there is no such thing as a natural disaster, right? Which is, uh, it's not just that disasters are vulnerability plus hazard exposure. It's also that the very idea of disaster is, um, is itself, as we say, an analytical conceit. It's a, it's a fiction. And what it says is some, uh, what it says is that, is that some suffering is normal. It is expected. It is uh, what, we, what we want and what we uh, expect and what we're willing to put up with often because it doesn't happen to us. Uh, whoever the us is, and some suffering is not any of those things. Some suffering is abnormal, it is out of place, and it gets special response, it gets special sympathy, it gets special state aid, it gets, it gets special money. And that calling something, therefore calling something a disaster is important. Like the designation of disaster, whether legal or cultural, is important because it unleashes all of these all of these new power, these new this new money, but it also licenses the suffering that's not disastrous. Uh, I'm going to let Andy say this because I always use the the paragraph from his book uh, when I when I describe this about houses going underwater. But um, it is I I hope that our contribute that the contribution of this book. Uh, I hope it's many things, but if it's one thing, it's that the very idea of disaster is itself dangerous because it 
says that some suffering is not a disaster. And um, that is, that, that's, a, that's a dangerous decision for us to make politically uh, or socially or, um, yeah, I can let Andy tell the, the housing underwater. Parable. Yeah, that one of, one of the things that, you know, listeners may perceive here, which is true, is that um, Jacob and I have, this is a conversation we've been having for the better part of a decade. So we, we know each other's, um, you know, I think we've been talking, we've been passing these examples back and forth and elaborating them and making them more sophisticated and sort of deepening our understanding of them. So he's just inviting me to, 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 give, to give the following example of what the disaster idea does. Um, if you imagine, let's say a person whose house goes underwater in a flood, that person, according to the logic of the disaster idea and American disaster policy, is entitled to relief, um, whether it's flood insurance or some other kind of emergency appropriation. A person whose house flooded usually gets money from the state. But a person whose mortgage goes underwater because of some economic cha change in the economic system is not entitled to any kind of relief. That's seen, that's naturalized. So by making a special case out of the one person and the one kind of loss, the, fo the focus on sort of causes rather than consequences, by focusing on the flood rather than the economic change, we make a special case out of one, we naturalize the other. And so then um, it's a way of sort of focusing our sympathies at the expense of other people. Another example, um, and of course, the two people are homeless either way is, is the point of the story, uh, largely outside of their control. So the logic by which one person is afforded sympathy and the other person is sort of natural, their suffering is naturalized and made normal and ignored um, and, and not made subject to redress is, is one of the main things that we mean to interrogate in critical disaster studies to ask why one person deserves help and the other doesn't. What logic is it that separates those two? Um, another example, just to go back to the pandemic that has, has stuck in our heads for a while, is that when Joe Biden was running for president, he said that um, COVID treatment should be free to everybody. And, and this made a lot of sense. You know, um, why should anyone be too poor to survive COVID? Um, but the logic there, and you asked before about ordering, this is the insidious thing the disaster idea does. By making a special case out of COVID treatment and suggesting that no one should be too poor to survive COVID, to get COVID treatment, it naturalized, say, cancer or heart disease. Heart disease kills more people than COVID has or will. Um, but we don't say that heart disease treatment should be free. You know, that wasn't Joe Biden's platform. So what is it that... so? So by making, again, just to say again, the same conclusion, by making the special case out of one thing, we effectively normalize and naturalize everything else. Sometimes I think about the uh, driving into a national park and you know, depending on which direction you're, you're, you're coming from, maybe you're driving in from the sort of tourist town that always sits outside. Uh, you, know, you drive by your McDonald's, your Burger King, your Wendy's, your six gas stations, and then boom, you're in the Tetons or something and in this like, spectacular, magnificent, seemingly pristine environment. And you say, oh, you know, this is so beautiful. Look what the country has done together. We've decided to preserve this place. But when you're driving out from the inside, you say, oh, you know, by protecting this one, by building the wall just around this little narrow part of the country, we've authorized development just beyond the gates everywhere. And we've allowed, so by protecting one thing, we've effectively authorized the, you know, destruction of everything else. And I think the disaster idea, um, 
by making some kinds of poverty seem legitimate and others seem illegitimate, by making some kinds of suffering seem legitimate and other kinds seem illegitimate, reveals the way that in, in some ways the most um, powerful thing the disaster idea does is to affirm, create the idea of order, the idea of legitimate suffering. And you know, maybe just to say one more thing about that, I said it quickly before, but if we focus on consequences rather than causes, we would reach very different solutions. So rather than thinking about floods, we thought about homelessness. Rather than thinking about you know, deprivation, we thought about poverty. It would, it would lead us to um, a very different, a very different uh, to imagine very different kinds of intervention. And I think critical disaster studies, though we never quite come out and say that in the book, I think that that is present certainly in our politics and present in our analysis. The, the thing I would also add is um, when, and this is, I, I'm thinking about one of the chapters in the book, Gara Strolovich's, uh, which is about the attempt to turn, her keyword is crisis rather than disaster, but it's, it's about the attempt to turn uh, the mortgage crisis, what, what came to be called the mortgage crisis, but 2006 to 2008, into a crisis, right? And a crisis for her is this moment or, or a problem, a social problem that gets a government, special government response. And she traces this history and, and her chapter is um, kind of a, a preview of a book that I think is coming out this year uh, in which she does this in a, on a larger scale. But for her, the idea of crisis is a political tool first mobilized by the NAACP uh, in the beginning part of the 20th century, in which they use the term crisis, and, and you can think about the, the magazine that Du Bois edited, The Crisis, to say the problem of white supremacy is not just a natural problem. It's not just uh, a chronic thing that you deal with, you not deal with. It is a crisis that has to be dealt with now. It has to be solved by the federal government. And what she argues is that it doesn't work, that these attempts to turn crisis, to uh, to use the idea of crisis to get government aid uh, in the case of the NAACP to fight white supremacy or in the case of the mortgage crisis to uh, to solve uh, to solve a, a, an economic problem, it actually doesn't help the most vulnerable. That the crisis, uh, the, that the mortgage crisis only becomes a crisis when it affects heteronormative white male-headed families. And as a result, the, the policy solutions don't actually help as much women-headed and uh, families of color. And, and so I think we have to be really careful, not only that the idea of disaster legitimates non-disastrous suffering, but when we are successful in saying, a particular problem is a disaster. It often, it often doesn't do the work we wanted to do. I think a lot, my my wife is an epidemiologist of lung health, which has made the last few years uh, interesting and busy. But before COVID happened, and after and now, her primary work is about tuberculosis. Tuberculosis kills three thousand people every day. It has been medically solvable. We have known how to cure tuberculosis since nineteen forty seven. People in rich countries don't die of tuberculosis anymore. It, and then once it was no longer a crisis, once it was no longer a disaster in rich countries, 
rich countries stopped caring about it. And so now it is a disease of poverty in poor countries. And and COVID, which I'm not I'm not suggesting that COVID should not have been dealt with as a as a crisis, but when COVID happened, not only did it get attention and care that tuberculosis never did, but that attention and care and disruption that COVID caused caused the death rate for tuberculosis to go up. So I to me, this is a story of um yes, calling something a disaster can unleash potential sympathy and money and power and state action um, and international action. But doing that can then provoke other problems beyond just the, the licensure of, of other suffering. Another example that I think about, I, I have occasion from time to time to be in the room with um, sort of applied crisis management disaster responders that that scene um and sometimes i talk about how you know when there's a hurricane in the gulf of mexico all eyes are on louisiana and the state and federal government really spring into action they will pre-position assets there's all this money that's unlocked you know people are mobilized from states across the country to sort of line up to be able to you know prop up you know whatever damage is caused by the hurricane and so, and people sort of nod, yes, that's our job. That's what we're meant to do. And I said, what if I told you that today, right now, 25% of children in Louisiana live in poverty. They may not have enough to eat. There's kids who are starving in Louisiana right now. Why haven't you sent the National Guard? Where are the MREs that could feed these hungry kids? There's babies, you know, they're suffering. Babies are suffering. What are you doing? And it makes people uncomfortable and, and almost without fail, someone will say to me, well, you know, those are political questions. And I think one of the things that we mean to do in critical disaster studies is to show that the political question is asked earlier than that. The political question is asked when the hurricane is defined as the crisis or the disaster, as the illegitimate cause and author of suffering, as opposed to all the other ways that people can come um, to experience misfortune. And we mean to sort of widen the frame to reveal the choices that happen, you know, on, on a much broader spectrum of time and space. I'd love to ask, um, you know, I my part of my background in coming to this field was having worked in, you know, uh, different humanitarian and development, very big bucket um, organizations, programs, and really being a part of firsthand this quite uh, elaborate quite neo-colonial system around which resources, political economy are responding to narratives of suffering as the justification for all of these different um, interventions, uh, layered bureaucracies that participate in lots of different kinds of governance and decision-making over the lives of people who don't even know they exist or who, you know, who's inside of them doing different things. Um, so I want to ask, uh, how does critical disaster studies, and in particular, does this book deal with um, the cultural and historical baggage of the idea that what comes in response to suffering is some sort of 
saviorism or salvation? What, what are the ways to think about responses to, or I don't know if interventions is the right word, how do we deal with this um, very, very uh, harmful and complex historical and cultural problem, knowing that we are still trying to deal with the same, uh, you know, the, the, the same terribly unequal outcomes, but without sort of reproducing them in the narratives that we assign to them. There's a really tremendous book on the subject called Disaster Citizenship, Survivors, Solidarity, and Power in the Progressive Era. And uh, we're lucky that the author is, is with us today. <laughs> well, thank you, Andy. I, I think, I guess, I'm actually, I think I have two answers to that. One is the disaster citizenship answer, uh, which is about solidarity. And I think it's about moving into the... Uh, moving from the idea of saviorism and charity and outsiders coming in to help the suffering, the sufferers, and to think about how uh, we can better structure our actions and our choices through solidarity, by which, which can be slogan, can be a bit of a slogan, but it, what it, the heart of solidarity is the idea that we're in it together. And the out, my fight is your fight and your fight is my fight. And um, I've written about solidarity and written about the labor movement for 20 years now um, and have engaged in solidarity for longer than that. Uh, as it happens right now, I'm in the process of organizing a union and um, among my colleagues. And I have had a, an experience that I've never had before, which is now it's my fight and other people are showing up for me. And they're not showing up because I went hat in hand asking them to. They're showing up because they know, the tenure track faculty are showing up because they know that full-time uh, full non-tenure track faculty like me is the way administrations all over the country, all over the world are trying to make an run around tenure. And so they know that they're standing with me because it's their fight also. Uh, my students show up or our students show up because they know that learning condition, that their learning conditions are our working conditions and vice versa. And so I, one of the things that I have learned um, that from, from the process of, of being on the receiving end is that it feels it feels transcendent, right? It, it actually, it's it's one of the best feelings I've ever had. And I think that one of the, to go back to, to disasters, that the helping people because you understand, not because you feel really bad for these poor people, but because we're all in it together and their fight is your fight and your fight is their fight, um, is, is really important and really crucial. Now there's a, there's a, a big caveat to that, um, that to sort of bring in a, another another one of the chapters that Eric Clark Ginsburg talks about in his chapter about um, Sierra Leone. And there has been a trend, a very kind of neoliberal trend, uh, the neoliberal version of what I'm saying, of like this, this attention to power, which is um, community-based uh, disaster risk reduction uh, or community-based disaster risk management. And um, which is to say, oh, local people know best. 
local people have to do have to uh, take the lead. And of course, what that means is local people have to do everything. So he describes in informal settlements in Freetown how there are organizations that that take that well-meaning organizations that say we have to pay attention to to power. We can't come in and tell people what to do. And so what that ends up meaning is that they organize these community-based disaster uh, risk management programs, which do things like take trash out of the river in, in the informal settlement, which is fine and good, but it doesn't solve, it doesn't actually address the origin of the hazard, which is outside the informal settlement, which is where is this trash coming from? Why is it, why, what is the river management system that creates floods only in the poorest part of the city? And there's a real danger that by focusing on the sort of bottom up, uh, we can all feel good that we're helping to empower the poorest people solutions, uh, that in fact, what you're doing is making it their problem, right? Like this, you have to solve the problem in your community, even though the problem's origin is actually outside the community and is is further up in government or further up on the class ladder. Um, and of course, to go back to the, the consequences, not causes point that Andy was making, um, it's a, like, fundamentally, the problem has, uh, problem, fundamentally, the problem is poverty and depression. And you can't solve you can't solve the flooding and the property destruction and the loss of lives in these in this informal settlement in Freetown by keeping everything the same except picking up trash. What you have to do is make these people less poor. You can't solve tuberculosis simply by giving people more access to to um, the various drugs. You have to make people less poor. That's what solved tuberculosis in rich countries. It was not actually, tuberculosis declined in North America long before the invention of penicillin. What caused tuberculosis to decline in poor countries was that people were living in better housing because they were less poor. Sorry, in rich countries. The people were living in better countries because they were less poor. And that's always gonna be the solution. Same with malaria, right? We can spend lots of time figuring out how to give better drugs. What solved malaria in the United States was not better drugs, it was better drainage. That's the thing that no one wants to spend money on in countries that still have malaria. Uh, and I've drifted off from the original question. So, uh, <laughs> no, it's this is great actually because one of one of the things that I wanted to hear from you two about is so the whole second section umbrella section of the book under the banner of governing disaster. It's a series of four cases. One is about the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. Another is this community-based disaster risk reduction or management program in Sierra Leone. Another is a so-called quote, you know, in air quotes, slum relocation initiative in India and the national flood insurance program in the US. And in each case, um, the built environment is the common thread for peeling back the layers of power um, resource distribution, inequality, and, you know, ultimately these very layered historical causes of crisis. A few hundred years of colonial, political, and economic history all captured by the built environment. So I have two questions for you. One is, um, you know, how might we see the built environment as continuously telling the story of crisis? 
And the second is about when disasters begin. Like, how do we actually locate if if we should at all when a disaster or a crisis begins, and and when when can we say a crisis has ended if if they ever do? I mean, the very critical disaster studies, I think, approach to those very good questions is to say, is first of all to ask what's at stake with trying to announce the beginning or the end of a disaster. Um, what does that get you rhetorically, politically, ideologically? Um, and, and it's worth saying maybe that um, usually in the sort of popular imagination uh, in, in most scholarly descriptions, a disaster ends when, you know, in quotes, order is restored. And this is a really revealing idea, I think. Um, it says, first of all, you know, it would be, I think, exhibit A of my claim before that um, the primary work that, that the disaster idea does is to affirm a certain vision of order. And then it organizes the goal of disaster relief around restoring order. And then that's the, in the beginning of the end, you know that you're at the end of a disaster when you have a mirror of what the beginning of the disaster was. Um, and so, you know, the unlike most welfare policy, most welfare policy is designed in some way to be redistributive. You want to take something from people from the haves and give it to the have-nots to try to, you know, level some inequality you've identified as as worth, you know, attending to. But disaster policy is really distinct from that because of this ideological commitment to the status quo and to ordering. The goal of disaster recovery policies to restore things the way they were before to make people resilient so that they can resist change. Um, so an example to go back, we were talking before about how uh, the disaster idea makes the special case out of flooding as opposed to say economic change when people are left homeless. Um, in the suite of so-called recovery policies after the Katrina flood, if a person were homeless before the flood, they were not eligible for the kind of assistance that people who had been housed before the flood were. In other words, if a homeless person applied for a housing grant after the Katrina flood, not only would that grant be rejected, they could that person could be uh, prosecuted according to various criminal standards for fraud because they were not entitled by the logic of disaster relief to quote, profiteer off of the disaster, it's seen as terribly illegitimate if anyone comes out better. Now we now have this phrase, build back better. It's suggesting a different approach, but that comes from outside the disaster. I mean, it's a welcome import from the outside, but it definitely comes from outside the disaster idea that people, that the goal is not to restore the status quo. Um, so I think, you know, that question of beginnings and endings is really one that I think um, we shouldn't take for granted as a neutral question and, and we should, um, focus very strongly on, on what kind of what kind of work it does uh, and, and and what the goals of you know periodizing in that way when I one of the things I wrote I think I actually cut it from the cut it from the book one of the things I thought a lot about in my Katrina book was saying you know uh, I could start the story in the hold of a slave ship because that's how many many people in New Orleans arrived you know how their families arrived you could start with the colonial conquest of the continent, because that gives rise to the state, you know, that we're talking about. Um, and and though that that's not a kind of intellectual game by any means. That's if what we're talking about is the construction and imposition of inequality, 
we need to talk about colonialism and racism as the roots. That's where so many of these crises begin. And, you know, the weather is just a sort of an episodic thing. And it's, it's very, you know, sort of curious or, or telling that we often name disasters after some, you know, proximate cause and then pretend that it's like, you know, Hurricane Sandy was the thing, you know, Hurricane Katrina was the thing um, that made the history of racial and economic inequality matter when in fact it's the other way around. You know, it's our social and political inequalities that make the weather matter to us so much. Um, that's what Jacob meant before when he said a hurricane on a, on a deserted island is not a disaster. It hasn't encountered human society, but it also hasn't been refracted through the human inequalities that uh, apportion suffering unequally and then make us grapple with these as moral, ethical, political problems. Um, so that's, a, I think, probably the most sophisticated dodge of a question of when, you know, disasters begin and end that I could that I could muster right now. Um, Jacob, I don't know, do you want to, do you want to talk about the built environment or? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what one of the, th those sorts of structures uh, that date in, in North America, that date to conquest or to slavery or to dispossession or to the, the 19th century kind of reconfiguration of, of patriarchy, um, those are obvious, those are structures in the uh, social scientific sense, but they also are felt in structures in the literal sense, that they are literally built into our environment because, um, because of the decisions that have been made over generations about how to build, where to build both individual level homes and, and workplaces, and also infrastructural level questions of, of levees or um, highways or whatnot. Um, the, and as this Ryan Hagen, one of our one of our authors, talks about how as uh, modernity has gone into postmodernity, uh, the the um, the ways in which we rely on different forms of infrastructure changes, but it always built on the previous the, the nature of built environment is that it, it necessarily is built on the previous version. And so our inequalities are built into our history, our, our histories and inequalities are built into our built environment. And in many, though not all forms of disaster, uh, I should say in many hazards, though not all, it's actually our built environment that kills us, right? That in an earthquake, in um, somewhat in a hurricane, in many things, right? It's actually, it's not the it's, it's the built environment, the home is the workplace is, is, is sometimes literally the thing that kills us in like an earthquake or traps us in a, in a place where we get killed by water or wind or air or, or whatever, uh, hot air in the case of a, of a heat wave. And so paying attention to the way that inequality is built into, uh, is, is literally built into a uh, built environment is is a, a really crucial thing for those who care about disasters. The other thing I would say is, um, so you're getting kind of a, a funny a funny view of this book because as it happens, Andy and I are both historians of North America, 20th century North America. Um, and so our default answers are always back to the United States because that's what we're, we are American. The three of us are Americans, the three of us in this conversation. Anna, you're the only one who doesn't study North America as your as your field. Um, and so, but this is a global book. 
um, and very intentionally a global book and, and an interdisciplinary book. But uh, I think one of the, so kind of an older version of disaster studies has been really dominated by geographers and sociologists. Um, and I think one of the notable things, accidentally, one of the notable things about critical disaster studies is that there are many more historians involved. And what historians are trained to think about more, like geographers are trained to think about space, historians are trained to think about time. And so I think one of the things that is really central to critical disaster studies is to try to think about time differently and to try to think about these overlapping and intersecting temporalities. One of the reasons I really like Claire Payton's chapter about um, thinking about the temporalities of the Haiti earthquake, that after, right, so there's the kind of eventment temporality, the, like, the event, this is an earthquake, it happened at this particular moment. Then there was a long durée um, temporality that that became very, that rightfully became very popular after the earthquake, that goes back to colonization, that goes back to the um, independence debt, that goes back to the way France and the United States subjugated, um, subjugated Haiti through money long after independence and freedom. Um, but what she says is we need a middle temporality. We need something that understands the how disaster risk was built into literally built into Port-au-Prince in the 70s and 80s. Um, and I think uh, one of the one of the way one of the the questions that we're asking is how disaster is built historically over a long period of time, but also into the future. So to think about anticipation, to think about how uh, out the temporality of the future also shapes how we understand disaster and how we experience disaster. Amazing. I uh, just before we get to the last question, I am um, just just building on that a little bit. You know, the the final the final segment called Imagining Crisis. I was curious to hear a little bit more from both of you or either of you. What do you hope that, you know, that the cultural interpreters in, in our societies, journalists, artists, writers, what is their role uh, in, in the current political and crisis moment that we find ourselves in? I hope that we, you know, one very high ambition for this book and for the work we do, I think is to, in the case of journalists in particular, and, you know, people that act on what they you know, uh, read in the news, is that they are a little more skeptical of some of the received categories um, that come at us. I'll give, I'll give two examples that come out of our book. One is, um, let's see which one I want to do first. We talk about, uh, uh, so in, in Kenyu, it's afterward to the book. Uh, he says that disaster scholars tend to totally exclude, have tended for a generation to totally exclude um, war from their accounts of disaster. And so then we look, for example, at the climate crisis and the sort of coming likelihood, even necessity of mass migration. And we see an unprecedented human problem. Never before have we thought about cities 
disappearing from the face of the earth, sinking into the sea and millions of people having to move. And Ken Hewitt's argument is well, that's only true if you just write the history of war out of, out of human history, because uh, in the, over the course of the 20th century through aerial bombing, humans destroyed far more cities in the 20th century than any grim projection of the climate crisis you know, imagines for the 21st. And that all of those people who were displaced and became refugees in wartime, uh, their experience, you know, first of all, deserves and demands our empathetic attention on its own, but also changes the way that we understand what the climate crisis is. It no longer becomes some unprecedented event in human history, but rather becomes something with which we have a, a, a quite sad experience with that we can learn from, that there's a storehouse of human history that we can raid here um, to understand how things might be better or worse. Uh, so I think, so that's sort of one example of how the imagination can change if you unsettle your idea of what a disaster is. If climate change doesn't, or if if my if mass migration doesn't have to be something that's animated by climate change, but rather is we just migration on its own, then we have a much, a much sort of broader human experience to draw from. Um, another one sort of much smaller is I'm often asked by journalists when they, I'm, I'm often have occasion to talk about the levy system that surrounds metropolitan New Orleans. And one of the words, the adjective that reporters invariably describe is they say it's very expensive. You know, we built this expensive levy system to protect New Orleans. What do you think about that? Or sometimes it comes in the form, um, and here Rebecca Elliott's chapter in our book is really useful, uh, that the national flood insurance is failing because it's been so expensive that it's in debt, $20 billion. And the question that critical disaster poses to critical disaster studies poses to those journalists is expensive compared to what? By what metric is the quote indebtedness of the national flood insurance program a failure? We don't say that the um, that public schools are in debt because they don't yield a profit. Why have we applied the sort of profit logic to flood insurance rather than asking, you know, there's other critiques you could make of the flood insurance program, but why don't we ask how many people it's enabled to live in safe and secure housing? How many retirements has it protected? Those are good questions, but the fact that it cost $20 billion more than it made doesn't necessarily seem to me axiomatically the measure of the success of that program. And similarly, you know, so the levy system has cost $14 billion. $14 billion seems like a lot of money, but it protects well more than $100 billion worth of stuff. And that's if you don't assign any value to human life. So if I told you that like either I was going to take $20 from you, if you didn't pay me a nickel, you wouldn't say that nickel is really expensive. You know, you would say this is the deal of a century. And that's the story of the New Orleans levy system. In fact, you could spend $100 billion and it would still be cheaper to protect than to lose. But it, but so the expensive, the idea of the cost comes out of nowhere, really. It's unexamined. It's just sort of common sense received wisdom that is passed on, I think, too often uncritically. So what critical disaster studies means to do is to is to ask, you know, if climate change, what is what is unprecedented about climate change? Surely the temperature, you know, the parts per million of carbon in the air is unprecedented, but the experience of losing, you know, of, of homelessness or migration, that's not new. And we can ask why we're attending to one instantiation of it rather than another. When we suggest that some public policy program is too political, you know, or is like, or, or is too expensive, you know, we a critical disaster study says, well, what has sort of so has shaped your vision, your ideological vision as to render certain policy solutions obvious and others extreme, you know, to make some things appear expensive and other things appear to be a great bargain in policymaking. 
those are questions that I think you know many scholars aspire to. And critical disaster studies is our way, is our lens for trying to get people to think in those ways. Hi. I think one of the, so I'm going to give you an answer that got me yelled at in my class because um, in, in my disaster studies class of, of undergraduates, uh, we read uh, Salvage the Bones, um, the, the novel that um, Scotty Parrish talks about in, in her chapter. And I made a comment about how I didn't, I was tired of novels that taught me to fight back against climate change or that somehow prepared me to deal with, with climate change by making it a, a, a thing that I had to anticipate and then um, give me hope about how, it, how, it's not, how it's not inevitable and we still have time to fight it. And I said, what I wanted from fiction was more fiction that helped me reconcile with the coming changes in world in the world that helped me come to terms with the increasing disorder, uh, a word I use kind of unselfconsciously there, but increasing disorder that we're going to see in the rest of my lifetime in, uh, in the lifetime of, of Andy's children. And my students, and, and I was thinking about, I was thinking about a novel like Jenny Offel's book, Weather, which puts together kind of climate anxiety with very ordinary anxiety and the disruptions and the fear disruptions of a hurricane or a, a or of a heat wave or whatever with the fear disruptions of the characters, um, brothers, uh, struggles with mental health and um, substance use disorder. And um, my students, just all of them roundly attacked me and they said, Professor Remus, we are 20 years old. We're not ready to be reconciled with this. Don't you dare tell us to give up. Um, and, and so I think, I mean, I think fiction in these imaginations are really important because how many times have we spoken to someone or have you read something where they describe a, a post-disaster landscape as looking like a movie or something out of a movie, right? Fiction, movies, plays, novels, poetry, folk tales, they, they absolutely shape how not only our understandings, how we imagine what is happening to us. We still talk about Noah's Ark as, as a prototype for what a flood looks like or and how we experience and think about a flood. And so, yes, novels that um, help us to put our, put our, um, to empathize with people who are more vulnerable uh, is really important. And I, I don't want to give that up. I want novels that also can teach us to fight back against climate change. I'll, I'll give that to my students. But I also do really want novels like, like Weather that put disaster into the context of other forms of suffering that help us to think about, uh, help us to anticipate future disaster as inevitable, but also future hazards as inevitable, but future disasters as not inevitable. And to put them into conversation with all of the other things that are going on in our life. That's really just a pitch for everyone to read weather, I guess, actually. But I want more books like that too. 
Well, we could clearly talk for, I, I can see that you two have spent hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months and months and years, maybe decades, um, just in this dialogue. And I've appreciated being part of it for an hour. I could go for many, many more hours, but we do want to uh, leave enough time for folks to listen to the whole thing. And before we wrap up, and I'm definitely going to buy weather. So you were, you were successful. Yes. <laughs> and millennia, as Andy just put in the chat. Um, if we're still around in a few millennia. Um, I want to ask you before we wrap up, what are you two, what are you working on now? This is how we like to close. Just, you know, what, 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 what are you putting your effort toward now? What should we expect to see come out next? Well, I am uh, kind of working on two or three projects. The first thing you should be looking for next is my union. That's the main thing that I'm working on right now. Uh, but which is another way of saying um, thinking about the material conditions of the production of knowledge, um, I think, is what is um, maybe the most important thing I'm doing, like I ever do. Um, in terms of books, I'm actually working on another edited volume about uh, the history and culture of the Housatonic Valley, um, which is another way of thinking about the intersections of built environment and natural environment, I don't like the term natural environment, but natural environment, um, and a way of, of thinking about my home river, the Housatonic River in, in Western Connecticut. But the other thing for this audience, actually, what I would say that I'm working on the most is um, I am on the editorial collective of a new journal called Journal of Disaster Studies. It is um, an international multilingual interdisciplinary journal that really seeks to publish uh, article length scholarship in critical disaster studies. Um, and uh, we are, our first issue will be out in about a year. Um, Andy's on the editorial board because he he wisely said that he, he didn't have time to be on the editorial collective. But uh, I really want to encourage uh, listeners who are working in this field to uh, consider submitting to journal disaster studies. It's a really exciting place to, to be publishing. Oh, it's open access free to publish, free to read. Um, and as I said, multilingual uh, is a really key commitment uh, for us. Um, so that has been that has been a fun way of continuing to articulate what this project of critical disaster studies is. Just to be the hype man for Jacob's journal here, if you have made it this far in this conversation, this journal is for you. I cannot emphasize enough that, you know, if, if these are the issues that you care about, that's the venue that Jacob and others are putting together to try to um, amplify scholars working on these questions um, and create an opportunity for people to sort of, to really move the field forward. Um, so I, I'm just so excited for that, for that journal to happen. For my for my own personal work, I think the next book is some kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a history of the 20th century American city in light of climate change. Sort of what I'm, what I'm prepared to say right now with a particular eye towards giving, um, precedent to problems and policy solutions that we often imagine to be unprecedented. So that's that's what's next from me. Stay tuned, maybe 2040, 2050 or so. <laughs> Both appropriately, equally daunting and exciting. Um, it was really, it was so nice to talk to, to the two of you today, Andy and Jacob, and looking forward to seeing, you know, what comes out next. Thank you so much for having us. This is really a, a pleasure. Yeah, thank you.